Jesus, Lord, take my Let me stand, I am tired, I am weak, I am This is 1A. I'm Jen White. Today, we have a special hour. It's our chance to bring you highlights from an event recorded here in Washington, D.C. at the MLK Memorial Library downtown. And we're starting with the song that was known to be a favorite of Dr. King's, Take My Hand, Precious Lord, as performed by Navasha Day, accompanied by Matthew Chase. They were among the guests and the audience who joined us earlier this month for a series of conversations and performances that explored King's rich legacy and why the arguments he made 60 years ago resonate so strongly today. Our salute to MLK, the struggle for democracy and the vote, starts with two contemporary voices who are leading and continuing Dr. King's fight for social justice, author and advocate Feminista Jones and artist Kwame Rose. So I'm 28. Mm-hmm. And I've spent my entire adult life, I guess, quote unquote, on the front lines. And I think being an activist in today's age is far more challenging, right? Because I'm on TV, I'm traveling around the country and the world, but I still got people that look just like me in my hometown city that's fighting to survive. But to them, I'm a target. I don't get any rest. And I had a conversation with Trayvon Martin's brother, Javaris a few years ago and we were on the train and he said to me, he was like, Hey, my mom thinks we need to get arrested. And I was like, what do you mean? She was like, he said that, you know, we won't be considered real activists or that we've done enough unless we get arrested. And I'm like, bro, your, your brother's death literally sparked a movement. What do you mean you haven't done enough? And, and, and so to answer that question, It don't matter if I'm dead. It don't matter if after I'm dead, white folks all of a sudden fall in love with me. It don't matter if my brother dies and I have to live that trauma publicly for the rest of my life. I still will never get a chance to heal in in, in this society. We talked to a lot of activists on our program and 
it's the weight. It's the weight um, of existing in this country. And I know you all carry it for yourselves and for so many other people. Feminista, what community have you shaped around yourself to make that weight bearable, if it is? I'm just, I'm thinking about this brother. It's the first time I'm meeting you, so shout out to you. I'm, I'm happy to meet you. You were four years old when I started my activism, and I love this. <laughs> like, I love this, because I'm tired, so somebody got to keep doing it, right? <laughs> like, and that's the truth with the intergenerational stuff. Um, in terms of the community that I keep around myself, I surround myself with black women, first and foremost. That is my lifeblood. That is my ancestry. That is the lineage there. That is what my... Um, ancestors told me to do to surround myself by black women. It's all about checks and balances in the community that I'm in. I keep, I'm in community with people that want freedom. First and foremost, wake up every day, we want freedom. Go to bed every night, we want freedom. And I can't be around people, I can't really trust people who are not about that life. Because every day, everything that we do, whether, and and it's funny that you mentioned this thing about them wanting to get arrested to be seen as real activists. Because activism covers such a spectrum of activity and behaviors and words and things that people are doing. And for some of us, it is a life 24-7. It's like whether I'm teaching a course on critical race theory before they get rid of them, or whether I am writing a book, or whether I am teaching the people at Amazon how to not be racist, you know, whatever it is, there's always something going on. And I have to be around people who understand that life, who want that life, who are about that life, because we're not looking at each other like, ooh, what you doing? No, we're all doing this together. I I would just love for a moment for the two of you to have a conversation with each other. Um, because I was not expecting this opportunity to have an intergenerational conversation about activism and your work. And Kwame, when I hear you say, there's no time, there's no space for your healing, that breaks my heart. Look, I've been in therapy, right? Um, Not that there's no time, no place, or no space, but I understand the platform that I was given, right? At 20 years old, I was out at a protest and a video went viral of me confronting Geraldo Rivera. And the next day, my entire life changed, right? And so I know the responsibility or I've accepted the responsibility that with my platform, I could actually impact a lot of folks and communities in a tangible manner. It's not that I don't take time. I love taking, I haven't done a, this is the first thing I've done in over a year because I've taken time because I became a full-time dad. So, <laughs> thank you. But I, I take the time, right? And, and, and give, granted, right, I love going to Amazon or, or getting those big consulting contracts, right? I, man, I'm going to die as rich as Dr. King, not as broke as Malcolm. <laughs> but, but understand that that in itself is tiring, right? Because no matter how great advice I can give to white audiences, 72 million white people still went and voted for Donald Trump. What, what a large part is, right, we keep talking about this burning house, right? But Dr. King never got the chance to grow older to maybe come to the realization that maybe the house should be burned. I, no, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that he did. 
And and here's here's why I say that. As someone who, I, again, I will champion this man's radicalism, I think a lot of what this man wrote has not been read. A lot of what he said has not been heard. I think one of the most important series you can listen to is when he was on the Canadian um, radio and was doing that series of talks that he did. You got to go listen to that because I think that that was some of the richest commentary that we've heard around that. I think he got there. Whether or not the media was going to let us know that he got there is a different story. And I think that that's a part, another important part about activism and, and what the impact that it has. So I just wrote a piece on Dorothy Pittman Hughes that's going to be coming out. And I said, you know, I asked some of my black feminist peers, can y'all weigh in, give me some thoughts about her? And most of them were like, I don't know who that is or I'm not familiar. And then I show the photo of her and Gloria Steinem with their fists raised. And it's like, oh, that's who that is, Right. And what happened was when they were going around, the media was only focusing on Gloria, even though it was Dorothy who was setting these things up and helping Gloria learn how to become a public speaker, right? So we have to think about the media narrative, and Malcolm talked about that. We can't just rely on what they told us. We have to think about what they suppressed. So I always tell people, go read Dr. King's books. How many of you have read all his books? How many of you have read at least two? Exactly. How many of you can name five speeches of his? How many of you know that the I Have Dream speech is actually called Normacy Never Again? So, you know, it, we, we can come to these events and we can take the day off, but we don't know Dr. Martin Luther the King in his own words. And so I think that that's one of the things I try to do, especially with younger folks, is make sure that they know what he was saying before, you know, they kind of, and I'm not saying you did this, but before they write him off before they feed into that Malcolm versus Martin nonsense. You know what I mean? Like, we got to do more about that. That's author and advocate Feminista Jones and artist Kwame Rose. They joined us earlier this month for a special event at the MLK Memorial Library here in Washington, D.C. I'm Jen White, and you're listening to Salute to MLK, the struggle for democracy and the vote. Up next, two powerful voices on the past, present, and future role of the Black Church as we return to another powerful voice we heard from at the start of today's show, Navasha Day, accompanied by Matthew Chase, performing Take My Hand, Precious Lord. When my life is almost stand God at my feet God my feet hold my hand take my hand precious Lord, lead me home. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Smartwool. 
For more than 25 years, Smartwool has been making merino wool socks and apparel designed to keep you comfortable. Because Smartwool believes that comfort sharpens focus and lets you perform beyond your limits. Comfort for the extreme and the easygoing. Smartwool is here to help you feel good. Now it's up to you how far you will go. Smartwool. Go far. Feel good. This is 1A. I'm Jen White. Today we're bringing you highlights from an event recorded here in Washington, D.C. at the MLK Memorial Library. Still to come, our salute to MLK, the struggle for democracy and the vote, explores the effect of recent voting rights decisions from the Supreme Court, as well as the recent political violence we've seen in the nation's capital. And the threads that tie those events to Dr. King isn't lost on our next two guests on stage. The Reverend Adam Taylor is president of Sojourners, Faith in Action for Social Justice. And William H. Lamar IV is pastor of the Metropolitan African Methodist Episcopal Church in Washington, D.C. Well, I want to talk about the intersection of activism in the black church. It has a long, long history. If you look at the messages embedded and the spirituals that come out of the black church and the way churches have served as as meeting spaces for those who were pushing for equality and liberation. The black church has so often been at the center of that work. Pastor Lamar, that, that centering of the church is historic, but how would you place the black church in activist movements today? Jen, I want to thank you for this tremendous opportunity. I would start by inviting us to think about the black church as a reality that does not begin with popular notions of Christianity, but it is a reality that begins in what Africans brought with them to this space. So we were not theological tabula rasa when we came here. We had philosophies, we had systems of theologies, we had understandings of the cosmos and of the divine. And those understandings were mixed with what was found here. So what I have said, and I will continue to say, that the black church is, because there are multiple expressions, what we do in Christian faith is not the same as what others do. What we value is not the same. Fundamentally, the church that produced Alberta Williams King, Martin King's mother, and that produced Prathia Hall is not the church of Jerry Falwell and Billy Graham. The black church itself, as is every religious tradition, is syncretic. That means it brings together multiple creeds. And what our people believe is that there is no faith where we speak of free spirits without free bodies. There is no theological reality that does not honor every human being and the very ground itself, the very earth itself created order. So the black church itself has always been dangerous to American empire. And if the black church is not dangerous, we are not doing our job. If I am welcomed in every political space, every corporate boardroom, I am anathema to the ancestors who founded the movement. The challenge that I see for us in the present day is that we have become, we are in a dangerous Vulcan mind mill with white evangelicalism. And that type of mind mill will damn not only the black church, 
but the American imperial experiment, which has never truly been convinced of democracy and the black church and other communities like the black church have been the conscience calling this undemocratic experiment to notions of democracy. So Pastor Lamar lays out uh, a caution, a warning there. But Reverend Taylor, what gives you hope today when you look at the intersection of activism and faith? I mean, a lot of things give me hope. And, and I, I will answer that question. I just want to build a little bit on one of the things that Pastor Lamar said. I think there is a disservice and a danger in the ways in which we so often de-radicalized Martin Luther King Jr., and there's also a danger and disservice in the way that so many Christians de-radicalized Jesus Christ. You can't understand Dr. King's theology and his activism unless you understand his connection to Howard Thurman. It's alleged, and I, you know, I don't proof of this, but I believe the, the rumor, if you will, but that Dr. King carried two books in his briefcase, the Bible and the book Jesus and the Disinherited. And Howard Thurman understood that you can't understand Jesus unless you put him in his proper context, a poor Jew, brown-skinned, who not only proclaimed salvation, but also proclaimed liberation. And as you just said correctly, those things always belong together. So part of my hope for kind of faith and activism today is that I think that there are many many Christians who do understand that connection and are really trying hard to live that out. And I see that through a campaign that Sojourners, the organization I have the privilege of leading, is, is a part of and is co-convened called Face United to Save Democracy. And we're very deliberate in using the word save because we do believe our democracy is under assault and it's in peril. And it is a multiracial, multi-faith, intergenerational campaign that is mobilizing faith leaders, including clergy, but also rabbis and imams. We have to remember the civil rights movement was a multi-faith movement, and we desperately need a multi-faith movement today to protect the right to vote, which John Lewis described as sacred, and to help save our democracy. And that campaign worked in 10 battleground states, mobilized over 2,000 what we call poll chaplains to provide a moral presence at vulnerable polling sites, to be a deterrent to intimidation and violence, and to put our faith into action. And that, that is just one example of a number that I could point to where I really do feel like there is a growing movement that is not only trying to defend democracy, but ultimately is trying to build a beloved community that Dr. King so dreamed of. Pastor Lamar, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, I, I have hope in a, in a number of places. One is that I want to I quote Malcolm X. Malcolm said that you can put a kitten in an oven, but it doesn't make it a biscuit. You think about that. I think that there are a number of people across the length and breadth of this nation, and really across the world, because notions of democracy are under assault globally. So we have to be clear about that. But I want to trouble even the language of calling this experiment democratic. If you look at land stolen, labor stolen, if you look at the United States Senate, which is one of the most anti-democratic bodies in the world, two senators from Nebraska and two from California. 
It is designed to ensure that Southern states could keep their thumbs on power, and it still works that way. There is no more anti-democratic reality than the Electoral College, which is a compromise to keep slavery in place. There are people who are understanding, and this is where the hope is, that that entire regime is designed to keep people away from the power they deserve, to eliminate and to destroy one person, one vote. There are people who are fighting for true democracy in local levels and across the world. And we need to be very clear that we've had presidents who lost the popular vote who have been destructive. The wisdom of the American people would have kept us out of the Iraq war. The wisdom of the American people would have saved us from January 6th. But there are mechanisms in place that are anti-democratic, that we call democratic, and what I am hopeful about is there are people who have stopped calling kittens biscuits. And that's where we need to continue. But we have to fundamentally, and here's another issue. Martin King has become a secular saint of the American empire. Let's be very clear. I was young but suspicious. Ronald Reagan signing this into law? Union busting, labor destroying Ronald Reagan? And when King came in 63, it was the march for jobs and freedom, for protection of human beings' ability to thrive economically. There are people who are asking questions that prior generations were afraid to ask. And one more thing about Mrs. King. In, in the correspondence that Claiborne Carson uh, has, has uh, unearthed and put together, King and Coretta were writing back and forth discussing, are we socialists or, or are we capitalists? Are we communists? Or cap they were asking fundamental questions and his triple evils, militarism, materialism, and racism, those things are intertwined and there are people now trying to figure out how we get out of that. And we won't get out of it until we fundamentally reevaluate systems that we call democratic, that we really know are not. Well, Reverend Taylor, that leads me to King's vision of beloved community. And how do you see that as a priority for addressing not just a divided society, but but the current state of our democracy and our divided government. Yeah, Dr. King's final book, many of you may know, was Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community? And I think, still think that is a timely, prescient question. But my remix, if you will, of that question is where do we go from here? Essentially, toxic polarization and fascism or a truly inclusive multiracial democracy, which I agree we've never had. And Part of the way we have to get there is we have to find a shared understanding, a shared memory of our history, and there's many battles taking place across school districts about what we can teach and what we can't. But we also need a shared moral vision of our future. And one of the reasons that I think former President Trump was able to rise into power and win the presidency, even though he did not win the popular vote, was that he was a very effective marketer, communicator, that helped to tap into and stoke a huge degree of white anxiety and grievance. White anxiety about the demographic shifts that are taking place in this country, and let's be crystal clear, so many of the efforts to suppress the sacred right to vote are a direct confrontation to trying to prevent demographic change from changing our democracy, to, to stall that change. But they are also, he was very effective in, through kind of the MAGA narrative, the Make America Great Again narrative, 
use as a dog whistle to trigger a lot of fear and anxiety and even hatred that you know, essentially became a message of we need to make and keep America white. And so you can't overcome a pernicious and negative narrative without having a more hopeful and transformational narrative. And to me, that narrative is the narrative of the beloved community. Dr. King described it as a commitment to agape love, as we heard earlier, but also a commitment to nonviolence, to equality, to so many of the shared values we have. And I wrote a book kind of focused on this, trying to unpack what the beloved community means for us today, and I'll end with this. My most succinct definition is building a society, building a nation where neither punishment nor privilege is viciously attached to race, to ethnicity, to gender, to sexual orientation, to age, to religion, and building a country where everyone is valued equally, everyone is respected, our diversity is seen as a strength and not a threat, and everyone can thrive. Mm. Now, I actually believe that is a vision that the vast, vast majority of Americans would agree to, but we don't hear it nearly enough from politicians, and I actually think it's not gonna come from politics, it's gotta come from civil society, and the church should be at the forefront of that and not at the back. And then, you know, one thing that comes to my there are multiple speeches and writings of kings that we don't hear of. I want to commend to you all a speech he gave called The World House, which is a vision for how we can live together in this nation and globally. Essentially, he's arguing that technology and travel and other things and, and bring, I see your phones, look up Martin King World House, read it. His argument is we live in one world house and that we must care for one another, that there is abundance. He would have been totally in the microphones about the casino capitalism that we have today that extracts value and does not honor labor. He would have been on the front lines around reparations. One of his most powerful speeches is where he reminds us that in the Homestead Act, Europeans, white folks, were given the West, given thousands of acres, and given land-grant institutions to learn how to make the soil profitable, and the people that had worked for free got nothing. Or in the words of the great philosopher Christopher Wallace, also known as Biggie Smalls, they got Nathan. <laughs> Not a thing. And so he would have been on the front line, and the problem with making him a secular saint, it, it bothers me. We roll him out once a year to be a prophet for color blindness and American exceptionalism, and that is not who he was. Like Jesus, as Reverend Adams said, Jesus was not given a bouquet and balloons in Jerusalem. And Martin King was not given a bouquet and balloons in Memphis. In 1963, one of the leaders of the FBI, after the speech that was made here, said that King is the most dangerous Negro in America. The most dangerous Negro in America. And I believe the holiday is one of the things about it, and you all may think I'm a conspiracy theorist, but I'm not. The purpose is to defang him. And in the words of Cornel West, it is the Santa Clausification of Martin Luther King. He was dangerous. In this sense, the FBI was right. Very, very briefly, I just want to hear just in a sentence or two from each of you, because when we talk about Dr. King, we talk about him as a solitary figure. And he was not. He was not. So when we, I, I can't even say reimagine, but when we try to reframe the day, it's part of 
better understanding the radical nature of his work, understanding the radical people who were around him. Reverend Taylor, really briefly. Well, I always felt, my parents instilled this in me, that Generation X, which I'm aging myself here, I think we might be in the same generation, inherited the unfinished business of the civil rights movement. But that baton keeps getting passed on, needs to be keep, keep, keep getting passed on, so that now my kids are going to have to continue this struggle and may really enable us to, to get much closer to this inclusive, just, multiracial democracy that uh, embodies the beloved community. So, Jen, uh, Anna Maleka Tubbs has a book about the mothers of the civil rights movement. When you see King, you must see his mother, Alberta Williams King, who, before she married his father, was marching and was boycotting in Atlanta. She and her family were some of the early members of the NAACP in Atlanta. And Martin King inherited through his mother. He said his mother taught him about slavery and economics. His mother radicalized him very much like James Baldwin's mother and Malcolm's mother radicalized him. So we must understand that King existed in an ecosystem his father, his grandfather's maternally, he did not arise ex nihilo and start doing what he did. He was a part of a tradition. And you're exactly right. And we must call the names of Prathia Hall and Ella Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer and others who were in that constellation. And so thank you for that. Pastor Lamar, Reverend Taylor, thank you so much. That's William H. Lamar IV, pastor of the Metropolitan African Methodist Episcopal Church in Washington, D.C., and the Reverend Adam Taylor, president of Sojourners. They joined us on stage at the MLK Memorial Library in D.C. for our salute to MLK, the struggle for democracy and the vote. Up next on this special program, we talk about who gets to vote. In a speech in May 1957, Dr. King said, quote, The denial of this sacred right is a tragic betrayal of the highest mandates of our democratic tradition. So where does that fight stand now, more than 60 years later? I'm Jen White. This is 1A. This is 1A. Today we have a special hour. We're airing highlights from an event recorded here in Washington, D.C. at the MLK Memorial Library. Our theme, a salute to MLK, the struggle for democracy and the vote. We end with a number of perspectives from those who've made both a close study of Dr. King and those who've borne witness to the backlash to transformative change born out of the civil rights movement and more recent demographic shifts in our country. On stage, Cheryl Cashin, law professor at Georgetown Law Center. She told us the results from last November should encourage us about the future of our democracy, albeit with a big caveat. A majority of the people in this country believe in, a, in Dr. King's vision of a radically inclusive multiracial democracy, but there is an idea of white supremacy, white nationalism, that they were fighting back then that still has enthusiasts. And so I think the election of the midterms, many people sighed a breath of relief since, you know, that it seemed as if a majority of people believe in that vision, but we have to keep fighting for it. And it is fragile. That's Cheryl Cashin, law professor at Georgetown Law Center. 
But was her optimism something shared by my next three guests? We're about to hear from writer Rich Benjamin. He's a fellow at Princeton University. Also on stage, Robert Burt, an assistant professor of history and government at Bowie State University and the director of the Karsh Center for Law and Democracy at the University of Virginia, distinguished professor of law Bertrand Ross. In their last conversation, Dr. King shared the following with famed artist and activist Harry Belafonte. I've come upon something that disturbs me deeply, he said. We have fought hard and long for integration, as I believe we should have, and I know that we will win. But I come to believe we're integrating into a burning house. And so with these gentlemen, I want to explore King's burning house metaphor, but with specific attention to the fragility of our democracy, white backlash as a response to black progress, and the repercussions of SCOTUS voting rights decisions. So, Professor Burt, the basement, if we, if we look at that as the foundation of this country, and as we said, it contains a fragile democracy, how did Dr. King think about equality as an or the essential element of a successful democracy? Well, you can't have democracy without equality, and you also can't have freedom without equality. But there's something else that's going on here that I think we need to look at. And that is that, uh, if I understand Dr. King correctly, uh, his view is that, uh, yes, the things we're fighting for, at least in terms of constitutional rights, are essential. Uh, And let's not understate that. But let's not overstate it either. And that is to say, winning certain legal rights are important, but they're not enough. Uh, You can have freedom in a very abstract sense, but lack the concrete forces, he puts it somewhere in his last book, to make human liberation concrete, to make it actual. And this is something I want to be concerned about because, you see, uh, I think Dr. King understood, and in the past 50 years we're coming more and more by experience to understand, that simply having more black faces in higher places doesn't change the nature of the game. A burning house is a burning house, and having Negroes who are directing it doesn't make it any more just. I I want to get into the economic aspect of this in a minute, but Rich, I I want us to reflect on the recent presidential elections and and the January 6th uh, attack on on on, uh, Congress, and and what does that say to you about the current state of our democracy? The only silver lining of January 6th is it punctured this era of white racial innocence, where finally people see what is what, the extent to which a faction of this country, which is not small, is willing to disrupt the democratic process in fear of all kinds of things. The policy outcomes that come with democracy, paid sick care, a minimum wage, what it really means to have a prosperous multiracial democracy, And at least it laid out, as we see this insurrection on social media, as we see it on television, it laid out what the other side feels are the stakes involved. And so at least now we know what's what in terms of what people are willing to do to stop what they see as a future that would really be democratic. Well, in your sociological work, Rich, you you write about white backlash to black progress. But is there, is there something unique 
about what we're seeing right now? Yes. So, Jen, I spent two years traveling to the fastest growing, widest communities in this country, and I embedded myself there. And what I began to see is a backlash that's based on demographics, a backlash that's based on a fear of perceived declining resources. And some of those resources, when we look at the climate, when we look at finances, are indeed real. And what we see is, you know, people realizing we're no longer in a post-racial moment, and so they're taking sides one way or the other. And, you know, we've seen historically when you have black progress in terms of the civil rights movement, what happened. But now the backlash, especially after Obama's presidency, especially after more people of color, more LGBT people being elected to Congress, uh, this backlash showing its face. Professor Ross, if we, if we talk about the repercussions of the recent Supreme Court decisions on, on voting rights, how do you connect that to the House <laughs> Dr. King warned about? Yeah. Um, one thing to note about Dr. King is that he never saw the Supreme Court as a savior. The progressive left um, has seen the Supreme Court as a savior um, in the current and in the past. And we had a blip in history between the 50s and the 60s in which the Supreme Court was more favorable than it had been in the past. But that's against a backdrop of a Supreme Court that has been quite resistant to the protection of the rights of marginalized communities. So he saw the Supreme Court as a tool, as a tool to be used to mobilize and to protect the people to be seen as a, to require that those in government act according to their responsibilities. But he did not see the Supreme Court as an institution that's going to protect the house from burning down. The only way the protection of the house from burning down is going to happen is through the mobilization of the people, and most importantly, the mobilization of the marginalized. So when you think of voting rights, he didn't think of Supreme Court decisions that took place in the 1960s as a means for protection of voting rights. He saw and he recognized that you had to get into these communities and, and mobilize them to action to act against state power, which was quite resistant to them exercising any sort of power that would undercut the, the white supremacist system. And so when you think about sort of the court and its relationship to the house burning down, the court was, again, a tool, but not a savior. Well, that takes us to this question we got um, from audience member Dr. Enid Legace. I hope I said your name correctly. It's a constitutional question, and I'll direct this to you, Professor Ross. Given the challenges to protecting voting rights in our democracy, what new measures should be conceived and implemented to ensure their survival? So I think that it's important to focus our gaze away from the traditional voter suppression that we've been focused on. And this might seem paradoxical, controversial even. We've been so focused on these barriers to voting, these tangible barriers of voting that have been put up by different states, such as voter ID laws and other ways to suppress minority votes. And what we've seen in the actions in places like Georgia, the actions of Stacey Abrams, who lost two gubernatorial elections, but won three senatorial elections, and also one for Georgia, the rebirth of democracy. What we see in her efforts is the actions of Dr. King, in which he saw the most important part of ensuring power 
is by getting people to the polls. And so the work that we've seen in places like Georgia has been focused on going into communities who have not participated in the political process before and encouraging them and mobilizing them and informing them and, and, and helping them get to the polls. And so when you think about measures that, sh that need to be put in place to protect and advance our democracy, they have to be focused on those particular efforts. We need to provide the incentives and the protection of those actions. The bigger threats to democracy are not voter ID laws. They are laws that are designed to limit the ability of getting souls to the polls, for example. There are efforts that are designed to, to limit the opportunities of, of people to reach out and connect to voters in their homes. They are measures that are set forth in apartment complexes that don't allow canvassers to come in to speak to the voters that are renting um, apartments in those buildings. If you don't reach and connect to those individuals and you don't bring them out to the polls, then democracy is going to suffer. It's going to suffer to their detriment, to their detriment as individuals who, who, who suffer economically and as a result suffer politically. I hear from people so often questioning why we're in this particular moment in the country. So I'd love to hear from each of you very briefly, if the house is on fire, what's feeding the flames right now? Um, and I'd like to hear from you first, Rich. What's feeding the flames is a party that is unwilling to acknowledge and put down all the nonsense that Donald Trump is up to. When you have half the country that's unwilling to acknowledge this, that's partly what's feeding the flames of this. But what's also uh, feeding the flames is a party also that will not put policy forward. So in the absence of a willingness to govern, in the absence of policy itself, you have to garner and drum up and gin up fear, boogeymen, and all of this. And so they don't want the government to function. And so when you have half a country that doesn't want the government to function, or doesn't want to put policy, or doesn't even want to govern, there's no substantive policy differences among them, I think that doesn't help the democracy at all. And we saw that most vividly in this last week. I mean, how is a country going to govern itself when you had that kind of clown car on the floor of a burning house? So I, I think those are critical. And finally, I think it's the white nationalism that's coming up. That's a brew of religion. It's a brew of fear of demographic change. And it's a brew of misogyny all coming in a perfect storm. Professor Burt, briefly from you, what do you think feeds the flames today? I think that um, what happens when uh, uh, these certain segments of um, frivolous capitalists feel threatened, they push back in certain ways. At times I wonder, well, you have two political parties. One is virtually not even conservative, it's pretty much turned into a fascist party. Uh, the other is it's also a kind of corporate political party, opportunistic in a way. And you have, you have a reemergence of new movements, and they want to push back, and they want to stop that, especially on the right, but maybe also to some extent on the so-called left in the establishment, right? They don't want things going too far. The right is very aggressive about it, and that's what we see. But I think what happens is that uh, they want to stop if they, ca if they cannot reverse progressive achievements that have happened, for example, when I was growing up. And as I've, I think I've tried to suggest before, 
if we don't, I mean, reality doesn't stand still. If we don't move forward, we're bound to eventually go backward, right? And there are people who want to push it. But Donald Trump is just an obvious one, right? He's very obvious. Some maybe just want to obstruct it a little bit. They don't want to reverse it. They want to hold it, hold it where it is. But it can't stay where it is. It's got to either go forward, expanding democracy, uh, expand it beyond the limits of, of race and, and class divisions and, and, and inequalities, or it's going to go backward. We have to push forward. Professor Ross, I want to hear your thoughts as well. So I would say, um, and I agree with both of what's been said so far, but I would also add the failure to fully consider and account for the least amongst us. That failure to fully account and consider the least amongst us in a hyper-capitalist society with a limited social safety net leads people to be rather desperate, desperate for some sort of hero. And sometimes they get misdirected into identifying heroes that are the villains. And if we want to think about the source of the recruitment towards um, aristocratic or not um, authoritarian leadership, we have to think about the vulnerability of our democracy to the fact that there are many people in our society that are completely marginalized and completely forgotten. And they're seeking a way to be remembered. And the way that they many sought to be remembered is a way that threatened all of us. I'll go back to the work of Stacey Abrams. I see hope in making those connections directly with the people, with talking to them, engaging them, hearing them, listening, and reflecting their voices and the actions that are made by the people in power. If we can replicate and build off of that work, which is the legacy of Dr. King, I think that that gives us hope in terms of the future of our democracy, a democracy that's truly egalitarian, not simply along racial lines, but also along class lines as well. Rich Benjamin, Professor Bertral Ross, Professor Robert Burt, thank you so much for your time. We've been listening to writer Rich Benjamin, also Robert Burt, an assistant professor of history and government at Bowie State University and the director of the Karsh Center for Law and Democracy at the University of Virginia, distinguished professor of law, Bertral Ross. And that is our salute to MLK, the struggle for democracy and the vote. Our special thanks to the MLK Memorial Library in downtown D.C. for hosting us and to all our guests who joined us on stage for what turned out to be a very special event. Today's executive producers were Maxie Jackson and Tom Hudson, with help from Anna Casey, Yanlin Zhang, and Allie Dickman. Rashad Young, Mike Kidd, and Rob Bertrand were our sound engineers. And from the library, we're indebted to Ryan Williams, Lisa Warwick, and Natalie Campbell, and to all those who showed up to be part of such a wonderful audience. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.